Welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I'm Pat Wright, your host, and I'm joined today by frequent guest co-host Kathleen Vandewill. <laughs> Kathleen, thank you for joining us again for another literary-based opera. It is my pleasure, Pat. <laughs> well, tell us about the opera we're going to listen to today. We are going to be listening to Hamlet by Amboise Thomas which is an 1868 version of a story that you've probably heard before, the story of Hamlet by William Shakespeare. That's a big old play. That's Shakespeare's longest play, isn't it? It is Shakespeare's longest play, yes. And and the full version is, is almost never performed because it's so long. Right. And I, I understand there's some cuts that were made to the Shakespeare version when making this into an opera. Yes. Some of the more tangential characters, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, for instance, do get cut in the opera version <laughs> they're not just dead they don't exist they, at all they they were never they were never born unfortunately <laughs> they are Poor two guys. of my favorite characters so it is sad to to not see them there <laughs> but yeah so so a bunch of, of changes are made the probably the most notable is the elevation of ophelia's part ophelia is is really double billing almost with hamlet in in the opera version right our lead soprano mm-hmm. okay and we get a little bit less of the ghost and a little bit less of Claudius and hardly anything of Polonius or Laertes. It really focuses down onto our, our main characters being Hamlet, Gertrude, and Ophelia. And don't worry if you don't know who these characters are, if you don't know your Hamlet backwards <laughs> and forwards, that's one of the reasons we have Kathleen with, with us. Kathleen's going to help us out with all of Hamlet. We'll let you know who these who these folks are. but. It's turned into a bit of a, a, a love story. We've got the, the four main characters, two women, two men, very balanced. Worth noting that this is a grand opera in the grand opera tradition, having premiered at the Paris Opera in 1868. And our librettists are incredibly accomplished as a duo of librettists. They not only composed the libretto for this particular work, Hamlet. Barbier and Carré also wrote the libretto for Gounod's Romeo and Juliet, 1867, so the year before this particular opera. And uh, if you're interested, Keely and I did that on Opera for Everyone. That was episode number 60. Together they wrote, I don't even know how many librettos, but they wrote three for this particular composer, Thomas, and eight for Charles Gounod, including Gounod's most famous opera, Faust which we're likely to come back to, having done La Damnation de Faust. We're, we're big, <laughs> we're gonna big fans of Faust here. <laughs> yeah, there's so many Faust operas, but enough of that. And the librettist didn't just take it directly from Shakespeare. There's actually another mediating influence here, which is Alexandre Dumas-Père, as he's known. So he's the father of the more famous Alexandre Dumas, who wrote The Three Musketeers. He was also an author and was really, really obsessed with Shakespeare. He took a lot of Shakespeare's plays, and Hamlet is the one he's most famous for doing this with, and he sort of transliterated them into a French 19th century setting, and most notably changed some of the endings, changed some of the characters to make them fit the mores of the society he was writing for. 
So we get the librettist already taking a play that's been mediated into this 19th century French moral structure and then taking that and making it into the opera, which which I find fascinating. And some of the main changes that we get, especially the elevation of Ophelia, I think really come from Dumas, Dumas' work. Well, you get a real contrast then between the English and the French because when this did premiere in London, by the way, they translated it in Italian because that's how opera is. <laughs> At Covent Garden, um, just the year after it premiered in Paris, it only played one performance. Ouch. The English were outraged at what had been done to Hamlet that Shakespeare had written. Because, of course, they knew Hamlet in a way that the French didn't. Right. Of course. Probably still almost started another French-English war. Oh, and in fact, one, one London critic wrote, no one but a barbarian or a Frenchman <laughs> would have dared to make such lamentable burlesque of so tragic a theme as Hamlet. Oh, I'm not sure I would call this burlesque, but they were not pleased. It was a bit harsh, which is, is fascinating because part of why Dumas changed what he did about Hamlet was that although he was very influenced by Shakespeare, the... 19th century France was not as excited about Shakespeare as as England was and not as excited about Shakespeare as we perhaps are today. They found Shakespeare to be barbaric himself, in fact. They they thought that his characters were too tragic, too overwhelming, which is a little strange considering how much overwhelming madness is added to the opera version, but a lot of the French version smoothed out some of the edges of the Shakespeare plays shall we say. Right. Well, and we all know that Shakespeare wrote a little bit for his his groundlings, mm-hmm. for the people to enjoy a good laugh now and again. And It's true. It's, yeah. And, and in fact, it's worth noting that, that there was a very popular version of Hamlet in France that was written in 1769, so in about 100 years earlier, which changed it up even more. So Dumas was actually restoring some of the <laughs> Shakespeare to Hamlet. One other thing about Alexandre uh, Dumas-Père, the father that you just mentioned who made this translation, he, along with Hector Berlioz, Opera for Everyone listeners will know him as a composer. Well, he's a composer of many things, but he did Les Troyens, and recently we did his Symphonie Fantastique. And that ties together because the actress, Harriet Smithson, who played Ophelia, in this incredibly important performance in 1827. She was an Irish actress, so she wasn't going to find success in England doing Shakespeare. She did do an English language version of Shakespeare's Hamlet in Paris, and it was a sensation, an unparalleled sensation. Both Alexandre Dumas and Berlioz saw that, and she becomes his obsession. She is the idée fixe, that fixed idea, that, that passionate, unattainable woman that he writes the entire symphony fantastique about oh wow what a story it's amazing and 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 that is part of what kicks off this wild interest in ophelia in france anyway and if you're interested for more information on symphony fantastique that was one of our one hour episodes that was 71.3 on opera for everyone so you can find that in our catalog as well but it all kind of weaves together with these individuals who are experiencing literature and music all woven together and 
It's a bit of a shame Thomas is not as well known as some of his other contemporaries, but he was an incredibly accomplished musician. We can talk more about him and his background later, but why don't you set us up for the beginning of this opera? Tell us how it opens and what's happening. Of course. So, at the beginning of our opera, we start with two of our main characters. We have Gertrude, the Queen of Denmark, and we have Claudius, who is the new King of Denmark. The important background information for the two of them is that Gertrude was married to the old King of Denmark, who died very recently, two months before the start of the opera. And she has just married Claudius, who is her old husband's brother. Her brother-in-law. Yeah, it's it's a little bit keeping it in the family. And this is causing some consternation among certain characters. So we start off with their wedding celebration, basically. They have just gotten married. Claudius is now king, and they are celebrating their union. And also it's her coronation. It is. So she's becoming queen again. And at one point, Claudius says to her something along the lines of you were queen before but now I'm going to crown you again as queen. Oh and what's Hamlet's relationship to these characters? So Hamlet is Gertrude's son with the old king and Hamlet has been away. He was away while his father died and has come back to find that his mother has very quickly moved on and moved on to someone he finds very inappropriate. He doesn't just dislike Claudius, as we'll find out, but sees him as a barbaric person who no one should should associate themselves with. And that is, is where we are at the beginning of the opera with uh, three of our four main characters. So the, the piece we're going to start out with, though, is Hamlet has, has returned home and is starting to to think deeply about what has happened and why his mother has moved on so quickly. listening to opera for everyone and this is hamlet a grand french opera from the middle of the 19th century and we just heard from hamlet what's he so worried about kathleen so he is worried about the fact that his mother has married so quickly it isn't just that his mother has married his uncle but that she has married after just two months 
And he sees this as a direct affront to his father's memory, that it must be clear that his, his mother and father never truly loved each other. And this is the first time that we hear him talk about the inconstancy of woman, basically. Yes. This concept that because his mother has not been true to his father's memory, women as a whole cannot be trusted. And cue entrance of Ophelia. Yes, cue the love interest to come in. <laughs> That's a, it's a great frame of mind for him to be in when his sweetheart walks in. Yes, exactly. Ophelia, as we mentioned a little bit earlier, has a much more elevated role in the opera than she did in the play. She's an important character in the play, but she gets a lot more time in the opera, and they sing a beautiful duet about their love for each other. The The opera focuses much more on their love story rather than on Hamlet's ill treatment of her, which is more what the play focuses on. They're represented here as lovers who are true lovers, I believe. Yeah, they seem to really care about each other, but his despair over his father's death has begun to cloud their love and his belief in the inconstancy of woman has begun to cloud their love as well. Yes, and and as I'm looking at the libretto here, I'm noticing that she rebukes him for maligning all the women. I don't deserve this, she says, and he relents and says, no, you really don't. You've been a sweetheart, essentially. It's true. He does set her up to an impossible standard, though as happens in in many tragedies. We see it right at the beginning here where he's counting her as an exception to the rule rather than as an exception that proves that the rule is perhaps not correct. He looks upon her as a, a true innocent soul. So if she were to prove him wrong, that would be doubly bad. Yeah, that would be confirmation of his worldview. Exactly. Oh dear. But this duet between the two of them is beautiful. It takes some text from Act 2, Scene 2 of Hamlet, almost directly, the, this famous exchange between them. Hamlet says, Doubt thou the stars are fire, doubt that the sun doth move, doubt truth to be a liar, but never doubt I love. He is, is yes, it's, it's... That's very romantic. Quite romantic. It's beautiful. And... It's his way of reassuring her that even though other people are being inconstant, he will not be inconstant in his love for her. Yeah, well, hang on for the rest of the play and opera to unfold here. <laughs> yes, inconstancy of, of woman does not continue to be the theme, I will just say. Yeah, go ahead and look in the mirror, Hamlet. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's hear the duet. Constance humaine, 
listen to that beautiful duet between Ophelia and Hamlet professing their love for each other. And as that ends, we get another character we haven't spoken of that much come in, who is Laertes, who is Hamlet's good friend and Ophelia's brother. And he is about to tell us that he is about to be sent away. So as soon as we meet him, he's gone. <laughs> he, <laughs> <laughs> I just came in to say goodbye. Yeah, pretty much. But this is this little piece where he sings with the two of them. He sings about the fact that he trusts Ophelia in Hamlet's care. And he, he knows Hamlet better than anyone, I would say. So that it sets up that he trusts that Ophelia is safe with Hamlet and that Hamlet is going to take care of her. Hamlet is not a very trustworthy person as the play goes on. So this is this is going to set Ophelia up to be vulnerable, I would say. But we get this beautiful profession of who Hamlet is in the eyes of his friends and countrymen at this point early on in the story, which allows us to really see how he changes throughout the rest of the opera. 
Yeah, and you get a real sense of close bro friendship between <laughs> Laertes and Hamlet, right? They are. Yeah, absolutely. They're soldiers in arms together. They're schoolboys together. They're best friends. Right. Well, let's hear the Cavatina by Laertes, where he entrusts his sister's care to his good friend Hamlet. Pour moi serviteur fidèle, je dois combattre et je dois m'exiler. Mais si la bonne frappe un jour modèle, votre amitié sera la consolée.
listening to Opera for Everyone, and this is Hamlet by Amboise Thomas. And we've just had a vow of brotherly friendship between Hamlet and Laertes, and Laertes entrusts Ophelia's care to Hamlet. Meanwhile, we have the festivities continuing with the marriage and the coronation of Hamlet's mother and uncle. That's not awkward at all. (laughs) (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) No one else seems to think it's awkward except for Hamlet, by the way, which I think is fascinating. Everybody else is fine with this marriage. Well, you don't question the king, I think. Uh, That's that's true. Underlying message there. (laughs) But Laertes is ready to go into the grand feast. Why not? Grabs his sister and says, Hamlet, are you coming? But Hamlet refuses to celebrate this. He's not going to be the party guy right now. He's not. But we're coming up on a darling little piece that I like because I like these kinds of pieces (laughs) in opera. Pat loves an officer's chorus and there's nothing wrong with that. Oh, it's lovely. It's lovely. So let's uh, let's put down our concerns about the whole uncle marrying the mother thing and let's enjoy the feast. (laughs) And that's exactly what the people of the court are doing here. for everyone and an operatic version of the great Shakespeare play Hamlet. We have introduced some of our main characters. They've gone in to celebrate the coronation of the queen, the wedding of the new king with the former and now current queen. 
tell us what happens next. Yeah, so so Hamlet is the only one who doesn't want to celebrate this this marriage. As we've we've said, this makes him deeply uncomfortable. So he is wandering around, and all of a sudden, the people who are keeping watch on the wall while everybody else is partying inside, including a character, Horatio, who will become quite important later on in the opera, but is a, a sort of school fellow of Hamlet's, basically. They have seen a ghost, <laughs> is the long and short of it. Um, Ooh. Yeah, so we have our first supernatural element introduced into the story. And the, the only supernatural element throughout Hamlet is the reappearance of, of the ghost of Hamlet's father. A fun side bit of trivia that I like is in, in, <laughs> in this... I love trivia. <laughs> Shakespearean trivia for your Jeopardy days. Shakespeare himself is thought to have played the role of Hamlet's father in Hamlet when it first premiered. Fun. Yeah. So it's interesting that as Shakespeare, you could take any role you wanted and you decide to take this one, which is, is very small, but very impactful. So the ghost has come to speak to his son. And he doesn't, he doesn't want to speak to any of these other side characters. So he, he waits until he and Hamlet are alone. So he's appeared to these side characters. Yes. Who make sure to grab Hamlet and say, no, no, come. This, there's a time at night when he appears. Mm-hmm. You'll see him. You'll see him. Yes, exactly. They, they understand the importance that Hamlet needs to speak to his father. So the famous phrase from Hamlet is there's something rotten in the state of Denmark. Um, that something yes. something is going on in Denmark that we don't really understand why, but something is, is weird. The atmosphere is strange. And one of the elements that's most obvious that shows that something is going on is that people have been seeing a ghost walking around on the ramparts of the castle, and it's the ghost of the old king. And the ghost is always meant to indicate that there's a soul who should be at rest, but is not at rest. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. So... Uh, right. Ghosts in Shakespeare are exclusively there because they have unfinished business. There's something that's happened to them that makes it impossible for them to rest. In the opera, the ghost makes it clear that he's actually residing in hell and that the leader of hell, the devil, who who knows, has allowed him out to come back because he has a message to communicate. And that message is that something is out of joint, that the line of succession has been broken. And that is that Claudius has killed Hamlet's father, the old king, that he has has usurped his throne, that it is not a natural death as everyone has thought. So that is the, the important message he has to communicate, is a message of vengeance. Something is indeed rotten indeed. in the state of Denmark. But by the way, I don't think Denmark is mentioned once during the opera itself. But. No, no, this is true. I think Elsinore is maybe once the name of the castle, but it, we're basically in 19th century France for all intents and purposes. <laughs> okay, that's <laughs> fine. But yes, Claudius has broken one of the fundamental rules of humanity, is that you do not kill the king. And you definitely don't kill the king to become king yourself. And you definitely and you don't kill your brother, right? You definitely don't kill your brother. It's 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 sins heaped upon sins, and you don't kill for a woman either. He's you know he's killed to usurp not only the throne but the bed of his brother. So Claudius is is an irredeemable character in this sense, and something is not right and must be put right by Hamlet. So this is a story about vengeance, and the ghost introduces to Hamlet the motivation of vengeance. 
that that is now what Hamlet must live for, must change his whole life to accomplish. The one caveat to the vengeance is the ghost says, don't hurt your mother, don't kill your mother. He says, leave her to heaven. Mm. He says, she will get her, her reward or her punishment, but don't harm her, that's a step too far. But beyond that, uh, it's it's any means necessary to accomplish vengeance. Right. I need a manly vengeance for my death, mm-hmm. but your mother will be judged later and not by you. Mm-hmm. And the call to vengeance here is something of a throwback in a way. It's a throwback to a different style of succession. When Hamlet's written, it's Elizabethan England, and there has very recently been a lot of beheadings. Obviously, King Henry VIII beheaded many of his wives, and the the line of succession has involved a lot of bloodshed, but Elizabeth's reign was relatively stable. It was very long, and there was not, for many years, there wasn't really a succession crisis where somebody was trying to to usurp her throne, exactly, although many people did try to assassinate <laughs> her. plot, and <laughs> yes. we, did, we did talk about on Opera for Everyone the whole Mary Stewart thing. But... It's true. But in, in comparison <laughs> to, you know, in previous, yeah, yeah. previous centuries, you, had, you were changing kings every, you know, five years or ten years because they were getting murdered right. and usurped. This is relative, and I, I put that in scare quotes, that is relative period of peace just because her reign was so long and so prosperous. Right. So... Shakespeare is calling back, though, to a time in which the idea of killing the king so that you could become the king yourself was not uncommon at all. We had the War of the Roses, where that was happening all the time. And the divine right of succession is something Shakespeare's very, very interested in. He explores in all of his history plays. And one of the things that's that's causing time to be out of joint in this play is that Hamlet should be king and he is not king. And and right. thus the, the world cannot be, nature cannot be calm. There are ghosts walking, everybody is freaking out, madness abounds, and that is because time is out of joint, nature is out of joint. And in this case, Hamlet's the only one let in on the cause of all these problems. Yes. Whereas he starts out railing against his mother, mm-hmm. The ghost kind of changes his trajectory. Mm-hmm. He can be angry at his mother, but he needs to take action mm-hmm. against his uncle slash stepfather. And this is one of the most interesting and sometimes most infuriating aspects of the play is is Hamlet's inability to take action. The ghost's call to vengeance here gives Hamlet a motivation and gives him a command to act. But Hamlet will spend the next several hours trying to decide whether he's going to act, what he's going to do. If we're watching the the play of Hamlet, he'll spend the next three hours basically talking to himself, trying to figure out what the answer is and having a crisis about, about what he should do. Whereas the ghost gives him clear instructions and says, here's what you do. Kill Claudius, avenge me. Hamlet is an interesting character because he doesn't just blindly follow that. Instead, he spends the rest of the play trying to figure out how to take that vengeance. But the ghost really does know his son because he says, don't wait, Mm -hmm. strike now. Mm -hmm. And Hamlet says he'll obey. Yes, but he won't. (laughs) But it's good. It's good that he doesn't. We get a lot of interesting psychological exploration of the self because he doesn't. Well, let's listen to this interchange between Hamlet and the ghost of his dead father. 
il faut que je me hâte. Achevez. Achevez. La opera for everyone 
And we just concluded the first act of our five-act grand opera by Amboise Thomas, and we're ready to start act two. Act two opens with Ophelia thinking about Hamlet and about their love together. We had that beautiful duet between the two of them where I quoted some Shakespeare that made Pat just melt. (laughs) Um, It was so romantic. And please tell me nothing has changed in their relationship. No, of course not. Everything is perfect. There is no conflict in this opera. (laughs) Unfortunately, no. So Ophelia is starting to doubt herself and doubt Hamlet because he has been acting very strange towards her. He has not talked to her. He has not looked at her for one whole day, but it's bothered her a lot. And she starts to wonder if perhaps he doesn't love her at all. Well, you know, talking to your dead father's ghost will it shakes make you a up. man act strange. It shakes you yeah. up a little bit. And and she, Hamlet, as, as many people may know, one of the things Hamlet does in the play is he pretends to be mad. So we're also seeing her react to the fact that he started to act a little bit strange, not to her, but to other people as well. And he's not talking to her. So she starts to doubt herself. That is something she's very prone to. And we open on her thinking back on their love and worrying about the future. That was Ophelia in the opera Hamlet, and during her singing about her concerns of Hamlet's constancy, 
Hamlet actually appears on stage and he hears her concerns. She, without remarking and letting on, notices that he's there, but she carries on thinking maybe she can get him to be a little more sympathetic to her. Mm -hmm. Well, this behavior is very different and she remarks upon that, that it's as if he's changed completely. He's professed his love to her and then all of a sudden he is completely ignoring her and she doesn't understand why that's happening. Right, she even says he remains silent when she notes that he's there and he leaves, he just leaves. Yeah, Hamlet has a tendency in both the opera and the play as well to kind of lurk in the background while other characters are singing or or speaking as well. He watches. It's one of the things that he does instead of acting throughout the play is he watches other people and how they act to try and make a decision about what he should do. Yeah. Well, in comes the queen to talk with Ophelia. Yes. So Gertrude has a lot of solicitousness for Hamlet's happiness. She has noticed that Hamlet is acting strangely and Hamlet doesn't give a clear indication of why he started to act this strangely. He's not let on that it's because of his father's death and Ophelia and her sorrow over his behavior towards her is convincing Gertrude that the reason for Hamlet's madness is that he is lovesick, that he is mad with love for Ophelia. So Gertrude thinks that the answer to everything is just that they should be together. They should marry, it will cure his madness, and everything will be fine, and this will be a comedy, and we'll all live happily ever after. But of course, it, it just reveals Gertrude's blindness as she's singing this song, because Hamlet's madness has nothing to do with Ophelia and nothing to do with love and everything to do with her own actions. Right. And in all of this, Ophelia asks the queen's permission to leave court. She wants to go into asylum and just be done with them all. Yeah. Ophelia is very, very delicate. She's a delicate character. She's easily, she's easily disturbed. And this is the the first but not the last time that she will mention that she thinks she should leave and go become a nun, that she should go to a holy place. And and of course, Mm -hmm. we have coming up the very famous line, get thee to a nunnery, where Hamlet agrees and, and says she should, that she should go devote herself to this instead of being a part of this mess. Well, she's, she's a real quintessential example of what the French call the femme fragile mm. instead of the femme fatale. She's a femme fragile. She's mm-hmm. a delicate woman, like you say. She is, and people were very fixated on the character of Ophelia. She gets painted, she gets, there are poems to her. There's a very famous paraphylite painting of her drowning herself that became one of the most famous. Yes. Sir Jean Everett Millet, mm-hmm. 1852. That pre one is, once you see it, you never get it out of your head. Yes, it made his fame and it helped make the Peraphrolites a thing, basically, because it was yes. so, such a sensation at the Royal Academy. Another trivia piece before we move on is that the woman who posed for that got hypothermia because he made her, he made her sit in the bath. Oh. She, she was fine, but she... <laughs> Don't be an artist model in the 19th century. But she got hypothermia because he made her lie in the bath as his model for this for hours and hours. You know, they say you must suffer for art, don't they? Well, the, the, the muses must suffer for art, I suppose. Well, in this piece, we're about to hear that 
Queen Gertrude sings, Dans son regard plus sombre, I have seen a strange expression flash over his somber features. <laughs> this piece is one of the, over the years, one of the most well-regarded pieces in the entire opera. This is Opera for Everyone, and that was Queen Gertrude in Tomas's Hamlet, and right at the end of that piece, the mother who cares so much for her son says, Ophelia, don't leave. I'm afraid for him. And Ophelia, not a strong woman, not a woman of her own conviction, says, I will obey you, madame. Mm -hmm. And she departs the stage. And then, of course, if your son has started to act kind of insane. It makes sense to discuss this with your new spouse. So Gertrude immediately runs to Claudius to discuss why Hamlet is acting so mad. Because although I mentioned that she seems blind to why Hamlet is acting mad or or is actually mad, we're not sure at this point, neither is she. She does seem to have some prickings of conscience because the very next things that she does is she talks to Claudius about what they have done. And 
we get for the first time their confession to each other that indeed Claudius did murder the old king. In the play, he murdered him by pouring a vial of poison into his ear while he was sleeping. Yes. So he he sort of literally and metaphorically poured poison into his ear, which is pretty vile and a pretty vile way to die. And they talk about that crime. And Claudius has no regrets. I, I would say Gertrude perhaps does. Right. Claudius seems just ready to dispense with Hamlet. Yes, absolutely. He says, Madame... Your son's mind is permanently disturbed. Like, let's just write this boy off, mm-hmm. shall we? Well, I mean, to, to him, Hamlet will always be a challenge to the throne. And if Hamlet were sure. gone, which is part of why Hamlet pretends to be mad in the first place, he thinks that Claudius will not perhaps have him killed if he thinks he's no threat to him. And Gertrude tries to, of course, convince him that it's just his love for Ophelia that is causing Hamlet to act this way. He doesn't know anything. And we leave, we leave them in a sort of gray area. We don't really know what's going to happen next. And the king makes an effort to play the role of stepfather by saying, call me father. <laughs> and Hamlet's not, not taking the bait. Nope. <laughs> my fa- flatly, my father is dead. And at one point the king says, my son, my name is Hamlet. <laughs> Just call me by my name. I am not your son. He's not accepting that stepfather thing. Yeah, he he says later, one of the most memorable lines, and this is in Act 3, Gertrude says, you've really offended your father. And he says, which one of us has offended my father? Ooh, burn. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and the king finally just suggests maybe he take off, go to France, go to Italy, and uh, Godspeed. Mm Mm-hmm. Just send him off just like he sent off Laertes, as, as one will notice before. Another person who might have been able to, to do something about this crime has been sent to Norway. And so I'm sure he does hope that Hamlet will leave as well. Right. And the queen continues to show concern for her son, but she also has to be careful not to upset her husband. Mm-hmm. So Hamlet has a new plan that he's putting into play. Yes. So there's a, a company of, of traveling players that have been wandering the countryside looking for a place to perform. And Hamlet has decided that what needs to be done is to bring them to play in front of Claudius and Gertrude, a play that will mirror their actions and then to watch their reactions to try and catch them out. Now, this is really, really strange way to enact vengeance. It is another example of Hamlet trying desperately not to do anything and not not to make a choice. He wants Claudius to reveal his own guilt rather than Hamlet have to reveal it for him. But it does lead to some fantastic scenes of the players, which we will see very shortly. And we get one of the things I love to have in a good opera, even in a tragic one like this. We get a lovely drinking song. It's true. We, it's, it's, it's time to just lighten the mood a little bit for a moment. Let's have a little fun here. You, need, you do need that because you don't have some of the other fun reliefs. It's Our true. reliefs come in the form of dances and choral pieces. It's true. And, and, and Shakespeare had built in much comic relief into Hamlet. Hamlet is hilarious, has some of the most hilarious characters in all of Shakespeare, but a lot of them have been taken out for the opera, so we get this this part added in to, to give us a little bit of a respite. La vie est sourde, les 
listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. I'm your host today, Pat Wright, joined by special guest co-host Kathleen Vandewill. Opera for Everyone airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. KHOL is Wyoming's only community radio station. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And when you go, you can find a rich trove of past episodes. Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Welcome back to the second half of Opera for Everyone. We are listening to Hamlet by Ambois Thomas. I'm Pat Wright. I'm Kathleen Vandewill. And Kathleen, we're going to break the mold again. <laughs> and instead of doing our usual beginning of the second half elements, we're going to save those just a moment so that we can listen to the rousing conclusion of Act Two. The players have done their play at the instruction of Hamlet, which is pretty much done in pantomime for the opera. And we hear the king and everyone else responding to what they've just seen. The king is enraged and everyone else is pretty upset too. And Hamlet truly seems to finally be going mad. (laughs) 
end of Act Two of our five-act grand opera Hamlet by Ambois Thomas. And now it's time to just take a moment and let you know who you're listening to. This recording was made in 1993 under the baton of Antonio de Alameda. It's the London Philharmonic playing with the Ambrosian Opera Chorus. Hamlet is sung by baritone Thomas Hampson, Ophelia is June Anderson. Claudius is sung by the bass Samuel Ramey. Laertes is Gregory Kunda. And Queen Gertrude is the mezzo-soprano Denise Graves. And Pat, I think it might be time for us to do an opera helmet quiz, don't you think? (laughs) Well, this is how we know, Kathleen, that that this is not your first time on Opera for Everyone. (laughs) Indeed. And I've actually um, taken advantage of you being a newcomer earlier and had you do the quick summations, but... (laughs) But today we're going to make you do it. (laughs) All right. So the opera opens as Queen Gertrude is about to be coronated, and they're celebrating her marriage to her former brother-in-law, who will now become her husband, and her son with the former king is not a happy young man. He's not pleased with his mother, and he's taking it out on all women until Ophelia shows up, and she convinces him to soften his heart at least towards her because she is a sweet young woman. He also has an interaction with Ophelia's brother who is about to depart and in that departing Laertes, her brother, entrusts the care of Ophelia to Hamlet. We know that's going to turn out to be a little bit of a mistake but (laughs) (laughs) but they have a nice little duet together. And then Laertes and Ophelia go off to the banquet, Hamlet refusing to do so because he doesn't want to do anything to appear to celebrate the union of his mother with his uncle. 
He does, however, go out into the night and meet with some of his old compatriots who alert him to the fact that they've been seeing this ghost. The ghost, of course, is the ghost of his dead father who has some unfinished business on earth. And he tells Hamlet alone, you must avenge my death. It was my brother who killed me. Yes, your mother was in league, but no punishment for her. Heaven will will take care of that punishment. Well, sure enough, after Laertes is gone for some period of time and Hamlet is totally overtaken with this concern about his father's and his father's instruction about vengeance, he covers up any threat he might be to the king with madness, with a, with a simulation of madness, or, or maybe there's some madness there, who knows? And Ophelia is beside herself with, why are you neglecting me? Why are you, have you turned cold to me? And it's kind of heartbreaking, but Claudius also notices this strange behavior and tells Gertrude, your son has lost it. You, you should just send him, send him away. And the queen is, is well and truly concerned about her son. Claudius tries to act like a father, kind of, sort of, tries to act like a father towards, towards Hamlet, and Hamlet's having none of it. And he comes up with this ruse to see if he can confirm for himself, for other people, who knows, the guilt of the new king. And he engages some traveling players to play a show, which will have the king show himself to be guilty. There's a drinking song, <laughs> not important to the play. The players do a good job, and the king is well and thoroughly enraged, and everyone is upset by this scene. And Hamlet has quite gone round the bend at the end of Act Two in this scene, and his craziness is on display for all, but he is absolutely convinced, if the ghost hadn't been enough, that the new king, the brother, murdered his own brother in order to become king and marry Hamlet's mother. I think that's about everything. (laughs) Yay! All right, so we are ready for Act 3 then. Yes, we are. So one of the things that that I was worried about a little bit when I first watched this piece was, what is Hamlet without Shakespeare's language? And it is not totally devoid of Shakespeare's language, because I think Thomas was aware that that was something people would, would wonder about. So he keeps the famous to be or not to be speech in there almost intact. And so we get this beautiful to be or not to be. Être ou ne pas être. (laughs) In French, exactly. This beautiful musing on whether or not Hamlet should commit suicide, whether or not it is worth living under the, the circumstances of his life now. Hamlet has, as I said earlier, has had a lot of trouble acting. The ghost keeps telling him to do something and he keeps resisting because he wants to play out all of the moral and philosophical implications of killing a king, of killing your uncle, of killing your new stepfather, and of all of the fallout that would inevitably come from that. So this famous monologue is his way of trying to work out whether it is worth it to continue living in the world. Mystery. 
That was Hamlet's famous to be or not to be, dare I call it a speech? (laughs) (laughs) Monologaria. Yeah, well, he doesn't have a chance to finish every single one of his thoughts because someone is coming into the room and in true Hamlet fashion, he hides (laughs) himself so that he can observe. Yes, Hamlet hides himself to see what this person is going to be doing. And Claudius enters and Hamlet is tempted to immediately fulfill this vengeance that his father has asked him to fulfill. Right, King Claudius is the man who needs to be done away with according to the ghost. It's true. And here he is. He is vulnerable. He is alone. He is, is, is ripe for the picking. And Hamlet is about to do it. And then, of course, something stops him because Claudius kneels down to pray. And Hamlet says to himself, I can't possibly take a man's life while he is praying. Which, while admirable, is also another excuse for Hamlet not to act, to continue our theme there, that he pauses. Well, it's, it's admirable, and it's also he wants complete vengeance if he's going to avenge his father's death. Mm-hmm. And it, it's believed that if you kill someone in the midst of praying, up they go to heaven. This is true. This is true. And that would that would not be what Claudius deserves. So he waits. And his waiting, though, means that he loses his opportunity. So let's hear the king's prayer where he doesn't simply pray to God, but he appeals to his dead brother to appease the wrath of him who sits in judgment upon kings. Oh, <laughs> 
to Opera for Everyone, and this is Hamlet by Ambois Thomas. We've just heard King Claudius at prayer. Hamlet can't kill him, and at the end of this track, we've heard his advisor Polonius rushing in, Polonius being Ophelia's father, and we also hear Hamlet. Where are we in this story, Kathleen? Hamlet as you as you were saying, he didn't know that Polonius was a part of the Confederacy, but now he sees Polonius and Claudius together and realizes that even more people were involved in the murder of his father, and he sees Polonius as culpable as well. So this is another black mark in Ophelia's book. Poor Ophelia. And of course, then Ophelia enters as Hamlet is thinking about her and singing about her, and she's with Gertrude. So we kind of see this setup where these people that Hamlet trusted, Polonius and Ophelia, are walking arm in arm with the people he knows he can't trust, Gertrude and Claudius, and it makes Hamlet even more unsure of who he's supposed to be trusting. And Gertrude is speaking to Ophelia. Ophelia is very upset and she's trying to tell Gertrude, your son doesn't love me anymore. Please let me go away. Let me go away to a convent. Let me be away from all of this situation. She keeps imploring this. And Gertrude is convinced that all Hamlet needs to get him back on the right track is to marry Ophelia, of course. But Hamlet says at this point, may the heavens fall upon me before such an ill-fated marriage can be solemnized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's he clearly is worried that he can't trust Ophelia at this point, and that feeds into his fears about the inconstancy of women. This is a little bit better sketched out in the play, but 
Hamlet has written Ophelia at this point in the play. He's written her a letter saying, I really do love you. I'm still constant to you. That's where we actually get Doubt Thou the Stars Are Fire. And immediately she turns that letter over to her father because she's a dutiful daughter. So Hamlet, when he finds out that she's been sharing his correspondence with Polonius, who he now knows he can't trust, he believes that Ophelia is spying on him and that she is either a willing participant in the Confederacy or an unwilling fool, which I think the answer is really the latter, that she's an unwilling and unwitting fool in this. But he realizes that there's nothing to be done. She's she's on their side and I can't trust her anymore, which is poor Ophelia. She really doesn't deserve that. And this is where he tells her, go to a nunnery. Mm-hmm. Get thee to a nunnery. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. And that, that, that scene and that line delivery, no matter what you're watching, what version of Hamlet is always just heartbreaking, of course. But I also always think, in a way, it's still the best advice that anybody could give Ophelia is that she really should leave and go somewhere that's safe. That's true. It is better than how it actually plays out. Yeah, It's true. No, it's, it's just that I always wonder if there's a double meaning to Hamlet's injunction there, that it's both, I don't trust you, get away from me, and also, please leave and save yourself because he knows that this is going to be a tragedy and that there's going to be blood spilled. And one of his lines here is, she's mad who could believe that Hamlet loved her. Mm. Yes, well, one of the things that I always remember about that beautiful phrase that we talked about earlier, you know, doubt thou the stars are fire, is what he's really saying to her is you should doubt reality before you doubt that I don't love you. So then when he tells her he doesn't love her, she begins to, of course, doubt reality. That's when she becomes insane. So he really sets her up to fall into this this madness. And of course, what's left out of the opera, but is a key part of her madness in the play, is that Hamlet accidentally kills her father, Polonius. And Polonius's death, as well as Hamlet's betrayal, lead to her just total, total descent into madness. Hamlet accidentally kills Polonius around this time in the play. He thinks that Claudius is hiding behind a curtain and instead Polonius is hiding behind it. So he stabs through the curtain. Don't stab where you can't see the person you're stabbing. That is good, my advice. Good there. advice. Yep. Um, good advice. And so the accidental death of Polonius by her lover is also what really precipitates Ophelia into madness and despair. Yeah. So. We have here, Ophelia is descending into madness and she ends up leaving and leaving Hamlet and his mother to discuss. And we get this incredible scene between Hamlet and his mother where Hamlet really accuses his mother for the first time formally of being a traitor, of being unfaithful, of betraying his father. And then we are about to hear his father's ghost comes in and appears to both of them to enact his vengeance. Yes, this is a beautifully crafted scene, and it, and we're not going to play all of it because we never can play all the beautiful music. <laughs> but it, this culmination here with the with the ghost of his dead father and his mother trying to, out of true love for her son, appease him, mm-hmm. but he's not to be appeased. Nope, no appeasing here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
opera for everyone and we have finished three of the five acts of Hamlet by Amboise Thomas and before we jump into act four I, I Kathleen if it's okay with you I'd like to just tell you a little bit more about <laughs> this composer please do he's not the kind of household name that someone like Puccini or Verdi mm-hmm. or even Gounod is Gounod was our composer for Romeo and Juliet 
and also for the most popular version of the Faust in operatic form. And it's worth mentioning the two of them in the same breath because they're both French composers. Most of their, if not all, of their works premiered in Paris and they're contemporaries. Ambois Thomas is just uh, about eight years older than Gounod, but Gounod is a much better known name. His more of his operas remain in repertoire. And it's interesting, I, I don't have a complete answer for why that is, but Thomas, ha- I'm sorry, I'm just going to do the English Thomas version, <laughs> but <laughs> um, he had an illustrious career. He entered the Paris Conservatory when he was 17. He won the Prix de Rome. Can you tell everyone what the Prix de Rome is, Pat? It is this preeminent prize that was originally established for painters and sculptors under the reign of Louis XIV, but under Napoleon's time, it was expanded greatly to include other areas of achievement. And so he won it as a composer in 1832. And besides the great honor of having won the Prix de Rome, it also gives you, at state expense, three years to study in Rome. Yeah, it's pretty. It's a pretty nice prize. Yeah, that's still around. Can I apply? <laughs> no, as a matter of fact, in 1968, André Marot was the Minister of Culture, and he abolished the prize at that point in time. So no, it is not still around. And besides, you're not French. Nobody funds the arts anymore. <laughs> well, this, I'm not. That's not a hundred percent true, but. <laughs> Um, yeah, he, so he had all these, these, these stamps of approval, and, and, and it becomes even more so. He becomes a professor at the Paris Conservatoire, and in, in 1871, he becomes the director of the Paris Conservatoire. So he is highly accomplished, highly regarded by his peers, and about as establishment as it gets. And he's written all kinds of music, including about 20 operas, And I just want to highlight a couple of the other operas. In 1849, he does an opera, Le Caïd, which is just a very warm-hearted parody of the Barber of Seville and Italian Girl in Algiers, both Rossini operas, Rossini being beloved by so many composers. And in 1850, you'll enjoy this as a a Shakespeare person, he did an opera comique called Le Songe d'une Nuit d'été, A Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh, how lovely. But it's not based on the Shakespeare play. Oh, really? He just takes the name. (laughs) And he has an interesting set of characters, which include dominantly Shakespeare, Falstaff, and Queen Elizabeth I. Interesting. So it's Shakespeare fan fiction, basically. I think so. I love it. I need to see it. And then his first opera with this set of librettists, Barbier and Carré, is Psyche, based on the Greek myth. And his biggest success as an opera, the one that had the greatest staying power and the most performances, was Mignon, 1866. So just shortly before Hamlet, which was 1868. And again, of particular interest to you, Kathleen, and anyone else who's been following this, it was based on a Goethe novel. Can't get away from those Goethe novels. 
<laughs> well, I think they make good operatic they material. Do. It was Goethe's second novel, Wilhelm Meister's Apprenticeship. Hmm, wonderful. Which some say established as a pattern the Bildungsroman. Mm, yes. Wow. Well, I, I think almost every single one of the operas I've done with you, we've managed to mention Goethe now. It's fascinating, isn't it? You know, it's like yeah. when I do the recordings with Greg, he always seems to come up with a reference to Homer. Mm -hmm. So I think your touchstone is going to be Goethe. Which is very surprising. I, I would never have guessed that Goethe would be my touchstone. But I'm happy to, to accept that. <laughs> so I... I don't have an answer as to why we don't know his name more. Mm -hmm. I think some people will simply say the work that Gounod did was of higher quality. Right. But some also argue he just got overshadowed for a little while. And towards the end of the 20th century, slightly before this recording from 1993 was made, there was a bit of a revival of interest in Thomas' operas, Hamlet and Mignon, more than the others. All right, back to our story. Yes, back to our story. We have left Hamlet and his mother and the ghost, and now we are going to move into an act that is entirely belonging to one person, and that is Ophelia. This act is her act. It is one of the more famous mad scenes. Another thing that you and I seem to be drawn to, Pat, is famous mad scenes in opera. <laughs> And we kicked that off with Lucia de Lamamore. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and in the, it was funny, the Met production of Hamlet that you and I both watched, Pat, Natalie Desai was supposed to be Ophelia, but she was ill. So it was someone else replaced her at the last minute and apparently only had a I week didn't know that. to prepare. Yes, that was our first echo of Lucia. And then when I was watching this scene, it's presented with Ophelia in a white silk dress and she ends yes. up covered in blood, just like Lucia. <laughs> well, aside from the fact that white shows up the red blood it's very true. well, she's also supposed to be dressed in her wedding garments, isn't she? Yes, she's sort of, she's dressed herself. She's wearing a veil in, in the production we saw at the beginning. She, she's always dressed in white throughout that production and, and a lot of times on stage in Hamlet as well. Because she's innocent, she's childlike, but she's also bride-like, it's true. But this scene sets up and begins with her talking about Hamlet as her husband, imagining the life that they would have together. But of course, her sense of reality has completely gone and she is she's mad because of course Hamlet has left her and she is alone by the river. And he's not just left her, he's... He's rejected her, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's shut that down, unfortunately. And she's alone because Laertes is gone, Polonius is gone, she has no one, and she has slipped into madness. Which is interesting when you set up the parallel of Hamlet counterfeits madness for his own ends, but it's mm -hmm. Ophelia who ends up actually mad. And she is, in many ways... She's the only truly innocent victim of Hamlet's revenge plot. I always sort of think of her that way, that it's, it's unfortunate that Polonius dies. There are many deaths that we would rather not happen because they're not directly connected to the, the plot to kill the king. But 
Ophelia is not connected at all to it. She is completely innocent. So as soon as Hamlet becomes responsible for her death, it really damns him because the revenge plot has just gone totally awry. And he's gone against what his father said, which is don't kill your mother, don't kill women, basically, in this endeavor. And and although he doesn't kill Ophelia, he really is responsible for her death. Yeah, she's just, she has the misfortune of being in love with Hamlet. Wrong place, wrong time. Very much so. Poor girl. <laughs> Poor thing. So this is a famous mad scene, if if you travel in certain circles. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, in, in the play, she doesn't really get a mad scene. She gets uh, some very short scenes where she's wandering around sort of going mad, but we don't see her die in the play. We just see the aftermath, whereas we get to see her entire mad scene and death. And it's played, that is played very explicitly as a suicide in the opera. In the play, it is more ambiguous. And Victorians actually tended to rewrite Ophelia's story to make it so that she didn't commit suicide, but that she slipped and fell in her madness oh, to absolve her. To preserve her, her yeah. innocence. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, we pick up here, in the bit that we're going to listen to right now, we pick up with the chorus, don't we? Yes, so near the end of Ophelia's act here the chorus of there's a chorus of nymphs of sort of water nymphs it's assumed that begin singing most likely only for her to hear and calling her towards the water and that is that's about where we're going to pick up yes her wits have fled forever and there she is and these are ophelia's final moments
listening to Opera for Everyone, and we have one act left to go, the final act in Hamlet by Ambois Thomas. Well, we've just um, <clears throat> witnessed an onstage suicide as Ophelia has gone mad and killed herself. Where does that leave us in the story, Kathleen? <laughs> Beginning of Act 5 opens in a graveyard. Hamlet is wandering in the graveyard and he sees some grave diggers that are digging an unknown grave. They don't know who it's for and Hamlet doesn't know who it's for either. There's been so much death and the tone of the whole opera right now is is very fitting for this graveyard scene. But it's a little sad because we, the audience, know it's for Ophelia, but we watch as the people on stage are just digging this anonymous grave. They don't know who it's for. She doesn't get mourned at this point. But Hamlet begins thinking of Ophelia at this point because he knows he's driven her mad. She is off stage somewhere in his mind. He doesn't know she's dead yet, but he knows she's mad. He sings this beautiful aria about her comparing her to a delicate pale flower. And he really grieves for the person that she was, because even though he doesn't know she's dead, he knows that she's irretrievably mad. So this song is about his grief and also his guilt, because he recognizes that this is really his fault, that he, he is responsible for this. Yeah, it's, it's an exquisite expression of his regret as regards Ophelia. Mm-hmm. has just expressed grief and regret and now Ophelia's brother Laertes comes onto the scene. Yes and Laertes is aware that Ophelia is dead. He knows who the grave is for and he also knows that he trusted Hamlet to take care of her and instead Hamlet has driven her mad. So Laertes is is here for revenge of his own and we... Good job Hamlet. Yeah really did (laughs) did not live up to his his expectations there. So they are about to to engage in a fight over Ophelia and her death. (laughs) 
gente, vous avez frémi, prince, d'où vient à la main votre main ne s'est pas ouverte. Oui, je suis de retour, c'est moi. Eh bien, que voulez-vous Quel intérêt vous guide Tu me le demandes, perfide. Pensez-tu m'amuser par ta fête douceuse This is opera for everyone. And now we have the dramatic conclusion to Hamlet by Ambois Thomas, based loosely on the Shakespeare. Yes, everything is about to come to a head. Hamlet sees a funeral march come in after he's had this fight with Laertes. As, as we said before, he's still ignorant that Ophelia has died. She's the real innocent victim in all of this. Hamlet has killed a lot of people and will kill more in his attempt to avenge his father, but Ophelia was never never really a part of that, so it's it's the first real innocent death and it affects Hamlet as it should. He sees her body being borne in in a funeral procession and the king, the queen, Polonius, who is alive in this version, 
Horatio, all the courtiers, they're following behind. So everyone is coming in for this, this funeral, this moment of mourning. And Hamlet realizes that he has killed Ophelia and he completely breaks down. He cries over her body and grieves and in fact pulls a knife to kill himself. Oh. But there is a deus ex machina moment and a ghost appears. The ghost of Hamlet's father appears again. And this time for the first time, everyone on stage can see him. Oh, and we really pretty much have everyone on stage who's still alive. Yes. <laughs> everyone except Ophelia. Yes, everyone who's still alive is here. And the, the ghost looks at Hamlet and basically says, this is enough waiting. You need to kill Claudius. You need to actually do what I've been asking you to do. <laughs> Were you not listening? <laughs> exactly. Because in a way, he's not wrong in the sense that all of this other collateral damage and in the opera mm. that's really concentrated in Ophelia has happened because Hamlet wouldn't do it. He knew he had to do it and he wouldn't do it. So Hamlet agrees and goes, okay, strengthen me, strengthen my arm. And he runs Claudius through and Claudius dies. And the, oh. the revenge has finally taken place. Everybody, of course, is in pandemonium because of this. And the queen cries out. She's accusing Hamlet of murdering the king, which is, of course, what Claudius did in the first place. But Hamlet responds, no, this is not a crime because I'm avenging a far worse crime. So I am absolved. And this is really similar to, in Greek drama, the idea that killing a king, no matter who you are, is never okay. But there's some gray right. area if you're avenging the death of the previous king. So that is what right. Hamlet is drawing upon here. And the king's dying words, I die accursed. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And he sends Gertrude to a nunnery. He says, my crime is avenged, but you, woman, you need to go to a nunnery to echo earlier words, basically. And Hamlet, although in despair, does not die. He sings, and now I am the king. My spirit is in the grave with my father and with Ophelia, but I have to be the king. I have to take control of the kingdom. And so he does. Right, and we, we end with the chorus. Long live Hamlet, long live the king. Which is completely different, <laughs> as you probably would imagine, from the Shakespearean version in which... Hamlet dies, and so does Gertrude, and so does literally everybody else on the stage. Uh, there's actually Everyone a... except Fortinbras, I believe, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> Who's not even in this production. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's interesting because Hamlet in the Shakespeare is really about the destruction of an entire generation, the whole order. Everyone dies, and there's one person left to bury the bodies and tell the story. Mm -hmm. There is much less death in this. There's a far shorter list of bodies, which is to me very surprising for opera that I would say that opera has has less death and tragedy. That's a good point. That is, there's plenty of stage blood, but yeah. you're right. It is, there is less less death. We, we ramp up to the Ophelia and Claudius, mm -hmm. but Hamlet gets to live. He doesn't die of his tragic flaw. He does not. Now, it is worth noting that some modern productions have decided that they don't like the ending and they have changed it so that he does die of his wounds, of his earlier duel with Laertes, as it as happens in the play. Oh. There's a version that was staged in, in the 80s that first did that and had the, the original Shakespearean ending. And that has become somewhat popular. You can see several versions. The Met version that you and I watched did not end that way, but there are some that are staged today. 
that have that more tragic ending. Uh, and interesting that the changed ending that adheres a little more closely at the end to Shakespeare is the Covent Garden version, mm. an English version. Yes, indeed. We, we return back to the fact that the English do not like this story to be messed with. <laughs> but I, I would imagine, I have not really looked into this, but I would imagine the difference in changing the ending so that Hamlet does not die probably had something to do with the time that this was written, that the idea of a king being killed, being deposed, that perhaps leaving things as unfinished in the middle of the 19th century in France was not as popular. <laughs> We're not too far from the French Revolution. We're not too far from some of the, the echoes of the French Revolution. So a restoration of order and a king on the throne who is going to restore order is probably a more, a, a smarter way to end your play if you are a French aristocrat. <laughs> <laughs> and an establishment man, exactly. someone who appreciates order. Well, shall we listen to our rousing conclusion? Let's do that. Thank you once again for joining us, Kathleen. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm always here to talk about Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> or any other literature yes. I can dig up. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I've been your host today, Pat Wright. Joined by Kathleen Vanderwill. If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Opera can be challenging. But everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable. Because we believe... Opera is for everyone. everyone.